Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, Managing Director and Founder of FW. I began life as a journalist, held senior roles in newspapers, edited Australia's largest magazine, and in 2018, I launched my own business. FW is dedicated to helping women navigate their working lives. But I've made my share of mistakes, especially as a leader. In this series, I go in search of answers to often complex leadership challenges. I explore the latest thinking on how to be a great leader and return to the tried and true methods to better understand what works and in what situations. After all the interviews I've done on the topic, the one thing I know for certain about leadership is one of the key skills or qualities in a good leader is trust. People have to trust you. It's a theme I want to explore as I think it's often overlooked or taken for granted. So who better to discuss it with than Australia's internationally recognised human rights lawyer, Jennifer Robinson. Best known for her work as legal counsel to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, Jennifer has worked on some of the world's most controversial and interesting cases. From representing the liberation movement in West Papua, to advising women and journalists in the Me Too movement, to representing Amber Heard in successfully defending Johnny Depp's defamation case in the UK. Graduating from the Australian National University in 2006 with the University Medal in Law, Jennifer went on to become a Rhodes Scholar. Jennifer is now herself a leading barrister in London. Jennifer Robinson, welcome to the FW Leadership Series. Now, I've significantly truncated your career highlights, so I'm going to embarrass you and um, (laughs) ask you to tell us how you became one of Australia's most successful expats. I'm not sure that's how I'd describe myself, but I am a very proud product of public education in Australia. And so I want to acknowledge the fact that I wouldn't be here today where I am without quality, well-funded public education and that's why it's so important that we keep it so that kids that come from backgrounds like me get to do things like what I'm doing. Um, So I went on to win a Rhodes Scholarship and go off to Oxford to do postgraduate study and that there I met Geoffrey Robertson, now Casey, who gave me my start in human rights work and and so starting with him in London I've worked on some of the biggest cases in the world and some of the most remarkable lawyers around the world on these cases and, and that's really what gave me the platform. So educational privilege and a sense of adventure is why I am where I am. And what about drive? Did you have the drive or was it just organic because of the Rhodes Scholarship and Jeffrey coming into your life? I always had this passion to want to help other people. Our family, we were very much brought up with the ethos of being kind to those who are down on luck, look after those who are less well fortunate than us. And so I had this ethos growing up and I was really inspired and motivated by what I saw happen in East Timor. Everybody will remember when Australia led the UN peacekeeping force to put an end to Indonesian war crimes in East Timor. And that sort of sparked my interest in international law and international human rights and I wanted to use my skills to help. And so it was just this drive about wanting to, wanting to improve things, wanting to make the world better. I know that sounds a bit sort of cliche, but it's true. And I guess too, I was very, I grew up in a little tiny country town down in Barrie. We didn't have, a, we didn't go on overseas holidays. My parents couldn't afford it. Um, my dad trains racehorses. My mum's a teacher. And I was really engaged with the world. I went on this school trip when I was 16 to Indonesia and it really changed my perspective. And I just was so curious about the world. So I really wanted to get out and about. But 
when you live in a little tiny town where most people, most people in my family didn't even have a passport, that seemed very far away and unachievable. And so my drive was very much about, I want to travel the world. I want to contribute to making the world better. How do I do that? And for me, it was a lot of really hard work. I really identify with the little town, having grown up in country South Australia. I don't think any of my family had a passport. And the wanting to see the world piece. The thing that fascinates me is that many of us do begin wanting to change the world, have a social justice bent. I was ended up in a boarding school with nuns who, you know, were incredibly good at instilling a sense of social justice and doing, you know, working with the homeless and the elderly in aged care centres, etc. But that gets lost along the way as we have to buy a house and a better car and a better seat on the plane. I'm intrigued that, that you never, never lost that youthful energy for changing the world. Why do you think that was the case? It's a good question. It's interesting you refer to to the nuns because I come from a big Catholic family and I really think that was part of the ethos. It was like that sort of Catholic social justice ethos that kind of... The Catholic Church gets a bad rap these days, but there was a lot... And for good reason. Let's not forget. (laughs) And for good reason. But there was a lot of what the nuns were doing was, you know, very valuable in communities. Exactly. Well, like I said, I was brought up with that ethos. It was very much a part of who I am and I think who my family is. While they're not human rights lawyers, you know, they're so supportive of what I do and... It really comes out of the ethos of our family. Like everybody gives to charity. People are always trying. They're always trying to help other people, and I, I love that about how I was brought up. I guess I continue to. I just had this drive for it. I'm so motivated by injustice. It really gets me. So that it's that drive that comes from that's not fair. That's not how it should be, and this sense of wanting to continue to push the mantle against uh, against injustice and against abuse of power and against inequality. And that really, it's so rewarding. I mean, sometimes people sit back and they say, oh, Jen, it's so great that you do the things that you do. I'm like, I'm not a martyr. I love what I do and I get a lot out of it. I get a lot of satisfaction out of it. I get a, a lot of joy out of it. I get a lot of validation out of doing this work. So it's incredibly rewarding. Why wouldn't you want to do it? But do you f- ever feel any obligation in the sense that I have had these opportunities? So I'm obliged to use my experiences, my smarts, to making a difference. I'm very conscious of the educational privilege that I have as a result of first our public education system, but being a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. That is a very privileged scholarship, which has quite a dark history. And I like the fact that the scholarship of the in the generation that I was there was very much of the ethos of our, our motto is fighting the world's fight. And so there's very much, I feel a great sense of responsibility of living up to that motto and using the educational privilege that I have to make the world better, to make Australia better, to at least try, <laughs> at least try. And also to make sure that because I'm, I'm in this privileged position that I also use my privileged position to help people less fortunate and to encourage more people to do this work and to make it easier for those who come up behind me. And that's shaped so much about what I do, whether it's I set up a global human rights program to support young lawyers into this work because so many people want to do this work, but it's not an easy, straightforward path. I had a Rhodes Scholarship that put me on this path and made some very difficult decisions about not taking bigger salaries so that I could continue on this path and it's paid off. But it's difficult. And so I've been trying to, sh- to, to show people the way forward and, and create more opportunities for people to do it. 
also set up a scholarship for kids from public schools in this country to help kids from from public schools and create mentorship and financial opportunities to help them get to where they can be and should be. And that to me is all about sort of creating a path behind us and, and, and making it easier for those who come behind us. And I feel a great sense of responsibility about that. I want to explore a bit around trust. I do many of these interviews um, on leadership. And one of the things that I think is often overlooked when I ask people, you know, what their leadership looks like and what they're good at, and that is the ability to build trust. So I'm interested to talk to you a bit about what you see as your skills are as a leader, but also how important trust is in your career, given the people that you've represented and the the, the scale of the challenges that you've taken on? Trust is really important and building trust is really important. It's, it's actually a professional obligation as a lawyer. Uh, you must have the faith and confidence of your client. And so building trust with a client is absolutely essential in your ability to act for them. And for me, building trust as a, as a legal professional is about doing the work. It's about knowing what you're doing and doing it well and continually doing it well. And showing your client that you that you know their best interests, you are representing their best interests. You will vigorously fight their corner, um, and that builds trust. But I do think also I'm often told that I have a, a deep sense of empathy and, a, and, a, and an ability to relate to people from all walks of life, and understand people in in ways and and demonstrate sensitivity in the way that I approach clients, particularly the clients that I deal with who are often incredibly traumatized or taking on really big challenging things and that they know that you'll stand with them and they know that you'll do the work and that you understand where they're coming from, that builds trust. But that's in a very particular sort of client context. In a broader context, I think, for me, it's important to, to maintain trust in, in the credibility of what I do and say. And so I'm very careful when I speak in public and I speak in the media, I'm very careful about how I speak. I'm measured, I'm cautious, I do not over I'll say the hard things that need to be said, don't get me wrong, I absolutely will and that's part of why I do it. But I am always am careful to speak with credibility so that the message can be heard. And when you build that trust, people trust you to represent in that way and to, and to give that kind of analysis, then you're going to be heard. Have you ever gone into a situation where you know that you're on the back foot, that and it might be, it could be a whole range of reasons. It might be your age. It might be that you're Australian. It might be that the client is a difficult client uh, where you really had to work hard to build trust. Because I've been young taking on some of these big cases, it's you're constantly on the back foot. You're constantly having to show that you deserve to be in that room, that you are as good as people say you are, that you can do the job, that your age is not an impediment to you doing the job. Being a woman is not an impediment to you doing the job. Your Australian accent doesn't mean that you're somehow not as good at your job. <laughs> Particularly <laughs> There's a few issues there. <laughs> in the UK. So I yes. feel like uh, sometimes you always feel like you're on the back foot. Um, I don't know if I'd like to describe it in that way, but at least I think there, there are lots of sort of perceptions about, or there can be lots of perceptions about me that, that make sometimes make it feel like you're you're on a bit of a back foot, but but look, I think one's work and the way you present one presents themselves is makes it self evident. So people see it or they don't. And so let's just uh, look at that use of language a bit more 
closely because quite often we talk about storytelling and language as being really important to building your leadership skills. Tell me, was there an example or a time when you saw how important language was in your daily work? Well, as a lawyer, language is everything. So, of course, language is important. You have to get it right. But for me, speaking with authority about subjects is important and, ha- and building that trust is important because there is so much that taking on powerful interests and taking on injustice and fighting for law reform, fighting for things to be different, you need to have that credibility and to build that trust and credibility around pointing in a new direction, trying to take the law in a new direction. That requires trust. And that's effectively what we're trying to do as, as human rights lawyers is to, law does not always equal justice. We want the law to, to reach more just conclusions. And sometimes that requires changing the law or arguing about why it should change and how it should change. And, and I think building trust as someone who is authoritative and has credibility around these issues is incredibly important. But also in a broader context, I mean, lawyers don't always speak to the media, but I've, I've had to. I've been thrust into situations where I've had to and where it's in the best interest of the clients to do so. But I'm always very careful about it, not just because I have professional obligations, but because I'm very mindful about making sure that the message gets across, that it lands, and that can shape political responses to your cause, to your client's case. And, and that's, that's something that I take very seriously. I work very hard at being prepared for, and clients appreciate that about the way that I operate. Trust is really linked to integrity too, of course. How do you build integrity, do you think? I think you just have to continually show up with integrity and be principled about the way you do Integrity and trust are inherently linked. And for me, it's about doing the right thing and always choosing to do the right thing. And I do. And I, and sometimes it's not always the easy thing to do, but you've got to do the right thing. It feels to me like integrity can't be done in short bursts. It, it's kind of a lifelong commitment. You have to have consistency. Otherwise, you don't have integrity. It's really tough, isn't it? To maintain your integrity, I think, is one of the most important things that any, all of us can do. For me, I take it incredibly seriously. It is fundamental to who I am and the profession that I'm in. So I'm, I protect it rigorously. When I say leadership, what does that mean to you in your career? Leadership in my profession, I think, means many things. It's showing leadership in the law, and I'm so grateful to work with so many remarkable lawyers at Dowdy Street Chambers in London who are really pioneering and pushing the law towards more just outcomes. And that's leadership. That's leadership in the law. Uh, I also think it's important to play a leadership role in thought leadership around human rights issues and advocacy. So taking the time to advocate publicly on what needs to change and why it needs to change. I don't just do my cases in a reactive way. I think strategically about how we can take cases to shift the way the law, what the law looks like, how it's implemented, or to change the law altogether. And sometimes that public advocacy side of it is a really important part of changing things because inherently the law is political and driven by parliament. So we have to play that role. And I think that's leadership in my profession and my space. But it's also leadership for me. It's also about particularly as a young woman in the law, although I'm not so young anymore, but a young woman in the law, is showing leadership as a woman in the law and showing young women what's possible for them and to continually encourage them. 
And also I, I see that on my public education work. So as a kid from a public school, I was continually dismayed when I'd walk into a room in law firms and I'd be one of the few public school kids there. And it happens, it's happened continually over the, over the course of my life. Why are there not more public school kids represented in the rooms that I'm in? We should be better represented. There's more of us <laughs> in this country than not. Uh, why aren't we there? And so to me, showing leadership around that and trying to really not just be a, a leader as someone who went to a public school and be public about that, but also to encourage others that come behind us, that's leadership to me. And have you led a team for any period of time or have you mostly just led small teams for brief periods and then you disperse? In my profession in the law, we, we tend to work in small teams and different teams for different cases. So the right teams put together for the right case. As a barrister, we're instructed in cases in which we have expertise. And But I work with different silks and different cases. I'm not a silk, but I work with different silks and different juniors. We'll put together different teams for different cases. And so that's we, we often work in teams and there's a leadership role that, that happens in that or can happen in that context. But I've also worked outside of the law. And so I, I built a global human rights program to fund young people into human rights work and to ensure people from marginalised communities were aspiring human rights lawyers were given opportunities to be paid to come and train and learn how to do this work. And I built the program from scratch for a foundation and spent five years funding, mentoring, building teams of lawyers and organisations to do this work. And to me, like, I was managing not just team within the foundation, but also a global program, which involved a lot of people. And that was really rewarding, but challenging, really challenging. But because I knew what I was doing it for and the outcomes and the impact was so important to me, you know, you, you manage it and you work through it. But it was... It was one of the most, probably most, one of the more impactful things that I've ever done. I am fascinated by that shift in the gear, I guess, that you have, you've gone from incredible success doing amazing work, actually having to deal with human beings yeah. <laughs> and pulling them together into a team. Because yeah. um, it is like running a football club. Everyone has different uh, levers that need pulling and you, get, you treat every, I think, mostly everyone needs slightly different treatment in a team. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go navigating just the, the, sheer, the sheer weight and complexity of dealing with normal human beings? I think I'm pretty good with people. I guess I, I think probably because of where I come from. Growing up in a small town, not many people in my family went to university. I grew up in the horse racing industry with my dad. So meeting people from all walks of life and from all social classes, going to a public school on the South Coast, going to Oxford, the rooms that I've been in. So I have I have developed an ability to work with people across a whole, you know, I could be in a refugee camp in Western Sahara or I could be in the House of Lords in the United Kingdom or I could be sitting around a table of billionaires telling them how they should invest their money in human rights work. And I think there's something about the sense of empathy that I have and my ability to relate to people and the life experience I've had that enables me to, to relate to people from a very wide range of backgrounds helps, enables me to put, put together teams to analyse the, the human dynamics and the social dynamics within those teams. And I didn't, I, one of the things I love the most is connecting people for, for impact. It's one of my, the most fun things to do. And so putting together a team, the team that you know will do the best job is really fun. Connecting the right people to do the job is really fun. And uh, watching people thrive and helping people thrive 
to be able to get those better outcomes is so rewarding and I think fun. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, choosing a team is is incredibly rewarding. How do you think your team then or your teams over the years have, would describe your leadership skills? I would like to think <laughs> that they would describe it as um, collaborative and empowering because I love working in teams and I love working, I, I prefer to work in teams actually. And I think I've always been of the mindset that we can work better and achieve more working together. And I try to be empowering, particularly for those who, you know, you, you manage up and, and encourage those above you, but you also, I hope, empower the people who are more junior behind me to know that they can do it and to help them do the best they can. And I get a lot of pleasure out of that too. I just want to explore, given the space that you occupy in human rights, social media and the rise of social media in your field. How do you consume it and, I guess, manage it, not only your professional life, but your personal life? Social media is an incredibly important platform in democratising publication effectively. And for me as a human rights lawyer, so I... I was sort of resistant to Twitter initially. I was a latecomer to Twitter, relatively late, 2011. So <laughs> going back some time now. <laughs> I, got, I actually started using it more because WikiLeaks was, abs- was using Twitter as a platform to publish and I started representing them. So it was, I had to be on there. And I had, and, but I saw the way that journalists used Twitter for their reporting, the way that politicians were using Twitter as platforms. And as a human rights lawyer, I use that as a tool for advocacy. So I used Twitter and Instagram and social media to advocate on my clients' causes and to to spark conversation and to advocate on issues that I care about. And and it's important. People, you know, journalists, I, I see, I saw with WikiLeaks how journalists were following Twitter and it became stories. And so social media is a really important platform. At the same time, it can be an incredibly toxic platform, particularly for women. So if we look at the way that women journalists are treated, the way that women in politics are treated, the way that women in the law are treated. An issue that I think we really need to deal with is, is the safety of online platforms. So we, we now recognise that it's an occupational health and safety hazard for journalists, for women journalists. Um, I know for myself, uh, it is a space in which I have suffered rape, death threats, all kinds of, also like sort of um, gendered attacks because of the work that I do and for having a public opinion. How dare I? have a public voice. And we're seeing increasingly, so the, the, the level of attack on women journalists, I represent, for example, the BBC Persian service at the BBC and the women, the Iranian women journalists who are public about their work, they receive the most abhorrent attacks. And the point of these attacks and the effect of these attacks is to push women offline and to remove women's public participation. And we really have to resist that. So friends say to me all the time, I actually take screenshots sometimes and share the trolling that I receive. And people write back to me, I get, I get a whole range of different responses. People are like, why are you engaging with it? Why are you sharing this? And I said, well, if I don't share it, you don't, know, you don't see it's happening to me unless I show you what's happening to me. And I want you to see that it's happening to me because this is what's happening to women in online spaces. And so you might not want to read it or look at it, neither do I particularly, but by showing it up and sharing it is a way of calling it out. So for me, I think I will not be quiet I will not shut up, but that is what they're trying to achieve. But I understand women who do come off, and we see prominent journalists 
come off social media because of the racism, sexism they face. Dan Grant, Lisa Miller, like I could, Hamish McDonald when he was doing Q&A. All these like remarkable journalists who end up coming out of the public space because they were just so attacked for having this public voice and women get it far worse. We need to protect against that because online discussion is so much about where society happens now. And if women can't participate in a safe way, then what does our society look like? Which brings me to Amber Heard, who you also represented in the UK and won. Mm -hmm. Social media played a very big part in how we all think about Amber Heard to this day. Mm -hmm. That must be an enormous frustration for you. Honestly, that case is one of the most demoralising representations of where we are as a society when it comes to the treatment of women and women who speak out about gender-based violence. So I represented Amber in the UK proceedings. Johnny Depp sued for defamation, sued the Sun newspaper for defamation for having reported that he was a wife beater. He said that's defamatory, said she lied. She had never given an interview to the Sun. She'd done what all victims are supposed to do, perfect victims are supposed to do. She went to court and got a restraining order against him, never spoke to the media about it, uh, signed an non-disclosure agreement, got on with her life. And then after the Me Too movement, people started to, to raise question, well, if Johnny Depp had a restraining order against him, then why is he being cast in films? Why are we not creating a problem about that? And I remember thinking that at the time, thinking, how is he still being cast in films? <laughs> he was. Anyway, post Me Too, it became a problem. He sues for defamation. I worked with her for two years on preparing the evidence for that case to help the newspaper defend on a truth defence that he was in fact violent towards her and the judge found that in 12 separate incidents he had been violent. He also sued her personally in the United States for an op-ed she wrote about why survivors need to be better supported when they speak out about violence and sued her for $50 million. In the US it went before a jury and the online space was completely different and I'd noticed it in the UK. So in the UK it's not broadcast online. And everybody was following the trial in the UK. People forget that the UK trial happened, but it did. And it was all over the media. And I had friends calling me saying, Jen, it doesn't seem to be going very well for her. And I said, well, inside court, completely different story. I can tell you it's going well for her. And I think we're going to win. But it wasn't being reported that way in the media. But it was interesting to me to see sort of the perceptions around what was happening in court. But in the US trial, it was all over the media, broadcast live online. People were... Right wing, it was like this kind of weird combination of like misogyny, celebrity culture, right wing incels, conservative media. Everybody who was concerned about the Me Too movement of going too far, women can suddenly speak out about men, were sort of getting involved and cutting and splicing her testimony to, to paint it in the worst light. The online conversation was appalling. I had friends calling me saying, because they knew I represented her and would won the case, my kids coming home seeing on TikTok, Amber Heard is a liar, a gold digger and... She's lying. She painted on her own bruises. You know, all these awful tropes about domestic violence that we should be educating children against were being pumped out through social media. And that jury was not sequestered, which means they were going home every night and watching the online discussion. And I really think that played a role. So instead of having a, an experienced judge decide on the evidence, you had a, a lay jury in a conservative state with a legal team, Johnny Depp's legal team, presenting all the male-centric myths about gender-based violence that judges are trained against and jurors ought to be warned against, and they are in criminal trials, no warning in this case, as a civil case, and he won. And I, it's astonishing to me because I know the evidence. We won the case in the UK on a more difficult standard of proof, and she has been vilified. Like, 
I get death and rape threats for being her lawyer. You can only imagine the onslaught. It was like a, I've never seen anything like it. But for me to know the evidence and to see the way that it was presented in court in the US case and worse online is really demoralizing. It's actually, well, you could turn any story on its head. And what's happened to her is unacceptable and, I, and it's having a silencing effect. So what woman is going to come forward to speak about gender-based violence seeing what happened to her? And I can tell you, I hear from my colleagues, they represent women who are taking on violent husbands uh, or ex-partners or whatever. And many of them are threatened saying, don't be an amber, no one's going to believe you. And many women are being dis- uh, sort of choosing not to take their case forward because they saw what happened to her. And I say this to everybody, you know, everybody had a view. Mm. Team Heard, Team Depp, which are you? And some of the conversations I heard, even from friends and people I know, I found astonishing. And what I would say to anyone who has has these views, Johnny Depp will never hear what you say about him. Amber Heard will never hear what you say about her. But one in three women have suffered sexual violence in this country, one in four domestic violence. And I actually think those figures are higher than what we actually know because people don't report but we, even on those figures, we all know someone who's been raped. We all know someone who has suffered domestic violence. They might not have told us yet, but are they going to come forward and tell you about their experience if they heard the way you spoke about Amber Heard? The answer is absolutely not. So we have to change the way we talk about this. Watching what happened to Brittany Higgins, it's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. And if we don't protect this cultural space for women to come forward, whether we're talking about the online platforms and, or the way the media reports it, the way we as a society talk about these things, we're never going to be able to grapple with the problem against violence against women. It's the number one human rights abuse in the world, or not number one, most prolific human rights abuse in the world. We're not going to be able to grapple with it if women don't feel safe to talk about it. And the spectacle that was that trial is only having a chilling effect. This is a contentious question, um, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because it's it's very much in my world at the moment is lots of women found that case difficult to see it in with the clarity that you just described and we're seeing the same thing with the Brittany Higgins case mm-hmm. at the moment. So how do you stay calm, <laughs> reasonable when faced with those sorts of conversations about, oh, well, maybe, you know, when, when that conversation's being had, or do people just not dare have that conversation around you? Because I personally find it extremely distressing to have to say she was a victim. The evidence is overwhelming and actually accepted. It's not even a, it's not even debatable that she was abused, a victim of significant violence. Recognised so in the United Kingdom by a judge, a judgment it's, that I recommend people read. It's on. There's footage <laughs> of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Look, I was so angry about that outcome. And so, I mean, I wrote a book. I wrote a book about the silencing of women and the law, how many more women exposing how the law silences women and how we can stop it. And I didn't intend to write a whole chapter about that case because when I started writing the book, it wasn't about... That book is not about Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. It's, it's a book about the global problem. And, and we do, when I, start, I started writing the book before we won the case in the UK or preparing the book, and I, I was, I'd written the book after we'd won, and that was a great outcome. Domestic violence charities were like, this shows that powerful men cannot weaponize the law to silence women. This is an important outcome for all women. You know, it was, it was such an exciting win for free speech and for women who 
want to speak out about gender-based violence. And that's how it was reported at the time. So I was happily writing our book. And then when the US trial happened, I was so angry about it, I had to write about it. So there's a whole chapter in our book about the Depp case. And it's remarkable. So I write about it as Amber's lawyer in the UK. I wasn't involved in the US trial, so I write it as an observer. But it's my first person impression of what it was like to work with her in court, what I saw, what I think went wrong with the US trial. And it's interesting, people's reaction to that book. Lots of people said to me, I felt deeply uncomfortable about that trial and deeply uncomfortable about the conversations that were happening around me, but I wasn't armed with the information to be able to have those conversations. And so I wanted, rather than just be angry about it. I wanted to arm people with information. And you'd be amazed how many people in Australia after the Brook launch would and talks would come up to me and say, I had no idea there was a UK trial. I was like, yes, and we won. Please go and read it. Um, and it's terrifying how that was completely forgotten and, and the, the facts were spun in a way that showed a completely different outcome. So for me, I think it's really important that people educate themselves. It's really important that we're willing to have these conversations. It's really important that we show thought leadership, not just as women, but men should be doing it too, about changing the way we talk about gender-based violence, changing the way we approach it, resisting these male-centric myths about gender-based violence, having difficult conversations with kids about why that social media post is completely inappropriate and wrong. And so no one's ever, you know, you can't say, well, I think we all have a role to play in changing this cultural conversation. So I wrote a book about it. So anyone who wants to learn about why... Thank you. That case is so outrageous. Please go and read the book. How did you come to meet Amber Heard? How did that come about? I got a phone call from a US lawyer colleague who was working with her and she had just been contacted by the Sun newspaper about the UK case and needed her own separate representation to advise her on what to do. Should she participate in these proceedings? So she had nothing to do with it. She didn't give the Sun an, an interview. It's similar to the Geoffrey Rush and Erin Jean Norville situation here in Australia. So she didn't give an interview to the Daily Telegraph. They just reported her story without her consent. And then later they're like, oh, well, actually, we need to defend this defamation case. Can you come and help us to defend it? And it puts women in an insidious position. So Amber didn't want to, she didn't want to talk about it again, but that he had come out and was suing a newspaper saying that she lied. And I had to explain to her the really awful position she was in reflecting on the Jeffrey Rush case. And I said to her, listen, if you don't give evidence, the newspaper may well um, settle the case and then he'll run around the world saying she lied. Look, the newspaper wouldn't defend it. Or they'll run the case and lose because they don't have your evidence. They'll have his, but not yours. And so she didn't want to do this, but her view was actually, I want to defend my truth. And if I have to do this, then I'll do it. You know, it was, that case was reported as a spat between Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. It wasn't. He was the one that chose to sue. And she got dragged through this process. It was so traumatic for her to give evidence, let alone what then happened in the US afterwards. And so it's one of those things that I'm so happy I know her. She's, I'm so glad to have worked with her. She is wonderful. She's incredibly intelligent. What happened to her is absolutely unacceptable. And she is committed to continuing to try to ensure that try to ensure it doesn't happen to anyone else. And that's part of what I've been doing too. Again, with the book and the advocacy I do on these issues, that should never happen to anyone else. So is she in a space where she talks about it now or is she just like, that's it, I'm done, I don't ever have to do any more? Or is she having a period of time where she might just she's having a period, recuperate? She's having some, um, some quieter time, but I, I, I hope that she will, and I'm sure she will, come out in the future and do more. 
And, you know, she really cares about these issues. So do I. Um, we talk about it a lot. And, for example, she was forced to give evidence live, broadcast live online about rape. I mean, that is appalling. That would never happen in a oh. criminal case. And it happened here to Brittany Higgins. She had to give evidence live, broadcast online of rape. That is unacceptable. Open justice is important, but we have certain protections for women who give evidence in criminal cases. There is no reason why women in a civil case should ha- be forced to do that. Now, it doesn't mean that evidence doesn't get tested, just to be clear to everybody. Correct. Judges are in the room, lawyers are in the room. The evidence is vigorously tested. That's what happened in the UK. Amber gave that evidence about rape in closed court in front of the lawyers where her evidence was tested and the judge came to a certain conclusion, which is not the conclusion the jury reached. And so, you know, we have those protections and it allows allows the, the judicial process to work, but without women having to do this. And and that alone deters women from coming forward. Well, then Can it you just imagine? Be- well, then it just becomes uh, fodder and content for all those creepy men that are accusing, threatening you rape on your social media accounts. Like it oh, just becomes... Honestly, I mean, I've got messages saying, I have a punchable face like Amber. Things like this, which goes to show that even the trolls think that he hit her, but it's... You know, these awful things that people say and do online, these keyboard warriors that sit at home in the comfort of their own home and spout this just hate, hatred and misogyny. We really have to grapple with this culturally as a society. And so what I found so demoralizing about that case is that I thought we were further ahead. I genuinely thought we were further ahead than that, that we'd made enough progress that that would not be possible. And I think we all have to take a step back and reflect on that. And I think there is this growing recognition People are looking back on that trial now and seeing it through a different light. And I hope our book helps to kind of help people to see, to help people in that growing understanding. We'll write about this. This will be this trial will be written about for a long time and we'll reflect on it. And the overwhelming response needs to be this should never be allowed to happen again. It's got a, a, a sense of Monica Lewinsky about it that you, everyone wakes up in five years' time and goes, how now, did I have that response to that? Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And slowly we're seeing people come around to this view. At the time, I remember watching it all happen and just thinking, am I the only person seeing this? What on earth, this societal reaction? I mean, online, there was something like billions of hits, Justice for Johnny Depp. Like the online space was so skewed in his favour that I was watching it going, how is this possible? Why? And actually, I think there was a lot of inauthentic activity online to create that impression However that came about and whoever directed it, I don't know. But there was certainly inauthentic, we know there was inauthentic activity in favour of Johnny Depp in that context. And and I remember sitting back thinking, is nobody else seeing this? Am I, am I going mad? This is insane. But slowly I think people are going to start to, to see it for what it is and as more analysis is done, as more research is done into what actually happened, particularly in the online space. But I do think when people understand the facts they see it in a different light. And certainly those who meet Amber, speak to her, you know, she's a she's wonderful. She's one of the brightest women I know and incredibly principled. And what's happened to her is just heartbreaking and should never happen, should never have been allowed to happen. Um, here, here. And thank <laughs> you for telling us a bit about the background of that. Do you ever just like go, this is just too hard? these fights? Because as a, as a journal of 20, 30 years and doing what I'm doing now, I do have a sense from time to time when I hear these sorts of stories that I'm done. Like I, I can't continue to have these fights and have these conversations and 
published pieces on this. I'm just, and I'm not on the front line of defending where I've got to look Amber Heard in the face every day and explain to her why the world's not seeing what you see. I, honestly, the day that judgment came down, I was I was in Amman and I was watching it live online in the U. It was happening in the U.S. and when they made the ruling jury, I just thought, how is she going to get up and walk out past those crowds? How could that have ha- just happened? And it was so awful, so demoralizing. I was really, really affected by that. But again, the injustice of it drives me forward. I can't tell you how driven I am by injustice and how angry it makes me, but I turn that anger into action. And it, it's difficult for me to sit back and not do, want to do something about it. And we can all do something about it in our own ways. So it's not just on me as a lawyer to do this work. Everybody can help, particularly in a context like this where it's cultural. It's about raising feminists. It's about calling out male-centric myths and tropes about gender-based violence and educating people against using them, having those difficult conversations with your family, with your friends, with your kids, with colleagues. Um, We can all play a part in what needs to happen. And if we do, it makes it easier. (laughs) (laughs) But look, there are times when I feel completely demoralised and I have to have a little break and give myself some time away from, from it or maybe not take on quite as much for a little while or have two weeks off on the south coast of New South Wales and go surfing and come back rejuvenated and ready to do it again. And is that, is that what, what it takes? It's turning everything off and being in a remote part of Australia or are there other, tech, <laughs> are there other techniques that you use that oh, are not quite as far away? I'm a big fan of yoga, so I find yoga and the meditative nature of yoga really important in my life to sort of give those calm moments and to get centred. I love surfing. Again, it's also quite meditative, like being out in nature and being quiet. I find that really rejuvenating. Being in the ocean is big for me. But having, you know, whatever your practice is, getting away from it and and having some switch off time where you can get centered and remind yourself why you do what you do and how you want to be in the world and how you're going to take it forward. I think that's so important as as a practice. I just have this sense that there's a lot more that you've got to do and give to your profession. Where do you think you're going to be in 10, 20 years from now? Hopefully still doing great cases that are, that are, you know, nudging the law in the right direction and helping people to achieve justice. The law is a lifelong profession. You know, I'm still considered very young and junior in the law. You know, I'm in my 40s now, but I'm still junior counsel technically. Is that and, true? Right. Well, until you're a silk, you're a junior counsel. Yeah, yeah. okay, right. Yes. Um, so sort of the, you yeah. know, we work until, we're, until we die, basically. Yeah. So you don't have to do anything different. <laughs> no, well, of course I'll be doing different, different things. I really loved writing. I really love writing. I've got two more books to write. I've signed a three-book deal. So the first book's out, How Many More Women, uh, about the legal backlash to the Me Too movement and how women are... The, the public interest in enabling women to speak out about their abuse and why that's, why that's important... I've got two more books to write and I really enjoy writing and I really enjoy, I could litigate cases all day long, but in the end, cultural change is necessary. So helping to shift people's perceptions and views through the advocacy that I do in my writing is really, I really enjoy that. And I'd like to do more thought leadership around human rights issues. So I love storytelling. So whether it's in books and in television and documentaries, I'd love to be doing more of that. So let's see. 
Jennifer Robinson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your contribution um, on so many levels. And I urge anyone listening to this to go and get a copy of How Many More Women. Thank you for having me. It's great to speak with you. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.